I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Yeah, sure is. That's all we get. Uh, well, I, I give so much. Okay. <laughs> it's Monday. Mm-hmm. We're a day late again. Yeah. It's been a busy week. It's, this has been the busiest week I've had in two years. Oh, I'm sure you feel good about that. No, I feel stressed out. <laughs> oh, you normally seem to thrive with thinking you're so productive. I am, but there's too many things going on. Oh. Like, literally. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, what's been going on? You've been rewriting something. I have had to gut a screenplay uh, <laughs> for budget <laughs> reasons, and... Uh, basically rewrite from scratch and that uh has happened and we decided to sell our house yeah so we had an open house on saturday mm-hmm. and then we spent sunday looking at homes yep so that was a lot of energy i'm also covering the afi film festival and we're just doing interviews this week for um oscar uh submissions for best international feature that was happening okay but moving on, uh, what else has been happening? Well, we should start with Drag Race. Get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. Drag Race UK, Series 3, Episode 8. The episode was titled Brawl Wars. So play on Star Wars, obviously. Yes. Where the, It was just an acting challenge with the top five queens or top four? Oh, God. Oh, it was top four. <sighs> top four queens who are Ella Viday, Kitty Scott Claus... Crystal Versace and Vanity Milan. Vanity Milan. Um, this was an interesting episode because they all performed well. Yeah, actually. so there were no. Rue did something different where she told clearly the bottom two. Crystal, Crystal and Vanity were clearly the bottom two, but they performed well. So she told those two they were safe. Mm-hmm. So of course the top two, Ella Viday and. Kitty's Got Claws were looking like WTF. There's no way we're in the bottom. And Rue says, no, you're both the top. So you need to lip sync. For the winner. To be the winner. And then she ends up... They both perform well in the lip sync. I forget the lip sync song. Oh, it was a song from Girls Aloud. Which I am kind of familiar with that group. I, did, I don't care for that song. But they both did an okay job, so she... Uh, okay, Josh. Well, I mean, you know. So she announced them both winners, and they both got their repeater badges. Oh, yes. The the repeater badges. Uh, so no one was eliminated, so we have a top four going into the final episode. Uh, that's it for that. Uh, Canada's Drag Race. So okay. season two, episode five. Unless you had something else to say about UK. No, I like UK. Yeah. Uh Canada episode five was by flop, so they they were split into two groups and they each performed a song called by flop, and they did that thing where each group does the same song as as in B Y E space F L O P. It sounds like you're saying by like a bisexual shoe or something when you say it out loud. By flop, <laughs> by flop. Uh, I don't. Again, still don't like Canada's Drag Race. Still think uh, Brooklyn is annoying. I think 
that lady's name is Tracy Melchor. Is that her yeah. name? She is very wiggy. She's very wiggy, and her um, runway commentary is terrible. I think she looks like she's trying to be like a black Barbie doll. Because it looks like she's also maybe like had work done on her nose. Her she's very wiggy. The way she speaks, she just seems very fake. And whatever she does, she's a she's a beautiful woman. But sure, uh, I uh... her combined with Brooklyn, and then uh, the guest judge was Biff Naked, who apparently is a singer. She seems so sweet. Yeah, I like because her. she mentored the contestants on their vocal performances. She was like saccharine sweet. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. But uh, I don't even know who was in the bottom. I uh, hate the judging, whatever techniques they're using, uh, uh, nonsense at Canada's Drag Race. <laughs> I don't, I, yeah, I don't even know if I want to get into it because it's just so annoying. Like because it's inconsistent and it doesn't seem to make, at least I feel like with like RuPaul's Drag Race U- US, the editing is done in a way that sort of pushes us in the direction of the judging. So sometimes I question, like, that doesn't seem right, but the way it's edited is like, oh, clearly they wanted us to think this person's lip sync was worse. Yes. But Canada is like, what we're seeing doesn't match what the judges are saying. (laughs) Well, even with the critiques of the runway, I, I think it seems off, like whatever they're trying to force on this cast. I I did think, I, I've said before, that Geometric kind of makes me uncomfortable because her behavior is... She seems manic and, and like she... She seems like that fake, happy, positive that will turn on a dime. Yeah, that will get crazy. <laughs> Who will just go crazy at any moment. Like, if she'd come in the room, I would want to leave. Uh, she did perform well and she won. And she won, but Which, in the bottom... But they divided by the teams and the bottom, they just picked apart these girls and... So the losing team had Cynthia Kiss, who I think is the strongest contestant. Overall, yes. Eve 6000, um, Kamora Amore, and then some other person. Kendall Gender. Kendall Gender. But... In the bottom were Eve 6000 and Cynthia Kiss, which I was so surprised by because Kamora Amore looked crazy in the performance. She looked like that. And her runway looked like, she was like this snow queen. I thought her costuming was okay. Brooklyn didn't like it. But her makeup, she looked like she was eating those Hostess white powder donuts and got it all over her face. Her lips were all ashy. She looked like someone trying to do Mayhem Miller but couldn't. Yeah, and then she's wearing those contact lenses to white out her eyes. I don't know. Anyway, somehow Kamora Amor is safe, but they put Cynthia Kiss in the bottom. Because she was captain. Because she was captain. But I thought she did a good job being the captain. It's just that her and Kendall are dancers, and Eve and Kamora are not. So the performance overall was terrible because you have two people who can't keep up. And I just felt like, well, whose fault is that? Right. Like, you cast people who don't dance and then make them do choreography, and then the person who has to do the choreography is the one in trouble. I That bothered me. I feel like the two who can't dance should be in the bottom, because why did you get on RuPaul's Drag Race knowing you have to dance? Right. Okay. So, um, ultimately, Eve 6000 gets sent home. Boy, that that person... She's non-binary, or they are non-binary, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize until they said that. Until they sent her ass home and said uh, that they were non-binary. Their attitude is terrible. Yep. Just fucking terrible. And, you know, all these 
reality show contestants who complain about the editing and how it's like, yeah, I'm sure they're manipulated in some way, but then you did say these words and unless they chopped up the word word by word and strung it together to make a different sentence, it's like you said these bitchy, arrogant things. So that's how you're going to like, that's the, that's what you wanted to be seen as leaving the show is just this delusional person who's Anyway, and also her narrative was that she was very negative and then the other queens, they were very negative and the other queens would try to like therapize them mm -hmm. and then they would be like, I don't want that. It's like, well then stop. Well then just don't speak. Then just don't speak then because you garnered this attention by being negative and then when people try to question it or encourage you, you're mad. That shit gets annoying. But moving on, Britney Spears is free y'all. Wow. Yeah. Big news. This week, I'm going to be careful because people don't like when I talk about Britney Spears, but um, I, I just still feel the same way I've always felt. Uh, Britney Spears seems like a person who has issues. But we all do. She has a very unique life. She grew up in the spotlight, right? I mean, she was on the Mickey Mouse Club and then became very famous as a teenager and then spent the next 20 plus years just this A-list pop star. And has had her struggles and spent the last 13 years in a conservatorship after she had sort of a very public mental breakdown. And then there was this sort of thing that happened, what, a year and a half ago? The whole Free Britney movement mm -hmm. that has led to this moment. And it's like, okay, if she was being sort of um, taken advantage of by her father or mismanaged, whatever, then he needs to be eradicated from her life. But this lady does not seem well. Looking at all of her social media, looking at pictures of her, she does not seem well. And again, I'm not a mental health professional, but the experience I have had, which is pretty vast, is like, just on site, she doesn't seem like she can manage her own life without help. Sure, but, and you know, I, I think that's one interpretation. It's, it's clear something's not right there, I think. But, you know, maybe part of that was, was due to her not having control of her life. Sure. And I'm not saying that she needs to be... What The point I was going to make is, I think, and the same point I made before, I think it's really weird that all of these people are like, you know, free Britney, free Britney. It's like, but if this bitch has issues and needs help, it's almost like how people want to like, you know, uh, like when animals get rescued, like wild animals... And then they want to release them. And then you see the video of like, the turtle was released back into the wild. And then immediately like a falcon swoops down and eats it. That's how I feel about Britney Spears. Like y'all want to free this lady. And, you know, I don't wish her ill. But I, I, I would not be surprised if 2022 is a dumpster fire for her. When she marries this man who doesn't seem like he's in it to win it. Like he seems like he's just taking advantage. Sure. And then she, you know... She's not going to be what people want her to be. I don't think she wants to be a performer. I don't think she likes the attention. So y'all freed Britney, but she's going to stop performing. She's not going to make music. She or, wants to look like she lives in like the trailer in the back of the field. So, you know, good for her if she can find her rhythm. But I just think it's funny how people want to release her into the wild. But she's not going to be what they want her to be. She's a wreck. Britney Spears is a wreck, like most of y'all out here. So, I mean... She's not going to be what we've seen her be when she was under someone else's control for 13 and, years. And maybe not. But, and, and if that was somebody's uh, 
uh, inspiration for wanting to join the get on the bandwagon, yeah, they'll be disappointed. But I, I, I do believe that she's been a cash cow for people. Oh, yeah. And that she should be allowed to make her own choices. Oh, 100%. Um, and there are people with less mental facu- faculties than her who are out here with kids running. Living on this block. Work, yeah, living next door to us, working at Sam's Club. Like, So, I mean, I'm not saying that she shouldn't be free. I'm just saying that I think all of the people championing, 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 championing her freedom, it's... It, it's multifaceted because yes, freedom like set us free. Like of course we all need to be free, but as we can be. But she's not a regular schmegular person. This lady is very very famous with a lot of money at her disposal now, mm-hmm. and you know of of course there's a transitional period where they'll there will be an estate and a trust, and she's not just gonna have all her money in a checking account with a debit card for her to spend. But at the same time, like. She is not a regular person. She can really... And again, this is why people wanted to keep close control of her is if she were just, you know, your next door neighbor who, you know, works at Chipotle and is going through some issues, she really can destroy her life more than it already is. Like, sure. she can't really... There, there isn't a lot at stake. But when you're worth $150 million and you have the earning potential to make double that, Everything you do seems to have a lot more weight, but the reality is Britney Spears doesn't have to do anything. She doesn't have to make money. She doesn't have to be rich. She can spend all her money and live a modest life in Kansas if she wanted to. So I think we have to remember that, that this setting this lady free means that she is free to do whatever she wants, and that's correct. But, you know, I don't know if people were thinking ahead. Like, I don't think this lady wants the life that y'all see for her. No, but you know... (laughs) Which is separate from her being controlled by people who have, like, malintent. I didn't watch the second uh, Netflix doc on her, Britney versus Spears. Uh, But but the first uh, item that came out... You know, I, I thought it was interesting to hear that she had asserted at points... Or, I don't remember if she asserted it or somebody else, that... Basically, you know, all her catalog of music was not her decision to make. Uh, so, may, what if I think it'd be fascinating to see that if she does come back with music, how it would sound like what what like garbage. Let me tell you, I know people won't like this, but Britney Spears is not a talented musician. Yeah, but okay, like she doesn't play instruments, she doesn't write, she doesn't sing, she's not a vocalist. No, but she, like, <laughs> she does have access to a whole lot. She's of not a great dancer. Stuff, but what if she had more of a voice in saying what kind of music she wanted to put out, how she wanted to use her voice? Maybe that high tinny thing wouldn't be apparent. That's what they claim is that that little baby voice she sings. Like how, with. like how Jennifer Tilly's voice is, you know. That's really not her. I have zero voice. faith that Britney Spears is going to come back like fucking Tori Amos. Like, I mean, or, you know I, what I mean? I, it's I, just not going to happen. She's not, Britney Spears is not who people want her to be. I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm, I'd just be interested in seeing if, if given the freedom, what would she present herself as? Just to be clear, I think Britney Spears is just a human being who's had a very unique life with a lot of troubles and hasn't been able to live freely. And I think that's really sad. And I think everyone wanting celebrity and fortune don't take into account that that shit can be stressful. And living that kind of lifestyle is can be very hard. And I think she's a good example of that. And I wish her nothing but the best. I think, <laughs> you know, well, her and, and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and, and that whole kind of media blitz in the uh, mid to late 2000s, 
you know, watching that doc about her was a really good reminder of how terrible the media treated her and yeah. many other women and, you know, you know, using verbiage like post me too, like all this bullshit still goes on. Uh, but I, I think that I'm not into cancel culture, but I think an awareness of what we find acceptable and how we treat and speak about people, you know, it's important. And I, oh, 100%. I, I you know, Britney Spears in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, I was a teenager then. And I remember thinking like, I can't, I can't believe how people talk about her. Right. So, I mean, she has had to deal with a lot and I think that that lady should be allowed to just live the rest of her life in peace and explore her creativity however that manifests in her little weird dance videos on Instagram I don't know but and if that's it that's it I mean there's still kind of entertainment in that too sure but I think I and think if she's my, happy right but I think my other point again is that wanting to free someone who may not be capable of taking care of themselves is separate from you think there are people trying to control her and I think a lot of the people who are very invested in Britney Spears are not seeing that this is a very complex issue and you don't have any knowledge of this lady's personal life. Right. You don't have access to her court records, her medical records. You don't know how her kids have been treated, who's been raising her children. You people know nothing about this damn lady. So to want to support this huge decision on her part just seems really odd. It's like how everyone, to me, it's like the Terry Schiavo thing. Like, yeah. people are so invested in other people's lives. You don't have to live the next 20 years visiting a hospital watching some vegetable in a bed. Like, so why you think you have an opinion or having an opinion about women's, in general, women's reproductive rights? It's just like, it doesn't make any damn sense. I agree. Now, if we want to examine the conservatorship model, that's something separate from Britney Spears. But I don't know, y'all basic and want to support her blindly. Then it is what it is. She she is free now, so yes, your, good your for wish her. has been granted. It was good. It was good news. Moving on, films released uh, that were not covered. Something called Passing. Yeah, you know, I should have mentioned this in the last podcast because uh, it had an earlier theatrical release and it is now available to stream on Netflix. It's Rebecca Hall's directorial debut. It was my favorite film uh, at Sundance this year 2021 and i was flabbergasted it did not win anything it is fucking fantastic you need to see it for what is it about it is based on nella larson's late 1920s novel uh about these black women living in harlem uh she only wrote she only published two novels quicksand and passing they are both fantastic uh rebecca hall is an actress you've seen in many things this is her directorial debut um she revealed after the premiere that uh, she's got black ancestry, which I feel like she had to say that <laughs> to justify, because she's, you know, a, a light-looking white woman. Uh, but I was very... You didn't explain what the movie's about. Uh, the movie is about uh, these two women n- navigating this social hierarchy, and Ruth Nega plays a woman that's passing as a white woman, uh, even though she's black. And Tessa Thompson uh, is her friend that keeps coming around and kind of... Uh, aggravating her comfort, if you will. Uh, and Ruth Nega's character has some, lots of psychological issues about that. She's married to this racist white man played by Alexander Sarsgaard. Uh, and, you know, the secret's revealed, there's a tragedy. It, But the way it's filmed, the acting, uh, uh, 
kind of navigating colorism, even though it's you know technically through a 1920s lens and how it it lends its it how it plays itself out in conversations today. It it's a close to perfect film, I think. Mm-hmm. And Tessa Thompson is excellent. Um, I think you need to see it. I could have seen this playing in competition at Cannes, so, which is why it, it felt kind of just. It got rave reviews out of Sundance, but I can't believe it didn't get anything. And this is, I was just so impressed with this for a debut. And from, I'm very familiar with the author's two novels. And if you haven't read those, please, please, please recommend, read uh, Quicksand or Passing. Quicksand has this fantastic uh, title character named Helga Crane, who's extremely outspoken and just this, you know, angry woman, uh, I, it's a character I've not forgotten, and I read it 20 years ago. Anyhow. Next, Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, Tick, Boom opened the uh, AFI Film Festival. It's getting a theatrical release before it is streaming, I believe, November 19th on Netflix. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not a big musical person, so I went into this blind, really not knowing anything about it, uh, and really kind of was moved by it. It's starring Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, uh, who was the man who wrote Rent, if you will. And Tick, Tick, Boom is his second uh, staged piece, the name of it. And he died of, uh, at the age of 36, I believe, of a aortic aneurysm. Uh, aneurysm uh, before he really got to see the success of Rent. Uh, in the 90s, but it was just a, a very moving. And I really liked, I uh, want to shout out Robin DeJesus, who you saw in the Boys in the Band remake. Uh, I thought he was really good too. Lastly, Mayor Pete, which was on Amazon? Yes, or Hulu. That Amazon opened oh. this week. I did not watch it, you did. I, oh, I watched it actually. Um, <laughs> uh, it's about uh, <clears throat> Pete Buttigieg, who ran for president, obviously, in the 2020 election. And it follows him sort of at the start of his campaign up until he wins uh, the Iowa caucus and then sort of the decline because obviously he was not the Democratic nominee. And then the final scene is him, uh, President Biden announcing that uh, Pete will be uh, the next Secretary of Transportation. Uh, I thought... You know, I always liked Pete Buttigieg. I thought that he had a really nice demeanor. He's he's a Rhodes Scholar. He clearly is like a smart, um, pensive person. And I thought he would have done a fine enough job. In that position, I feel like, you know, not one person is going to be our savior, right? That's not how um, government works. That's not what the democratic process is about. So I feel like getting a decent person in that office would lead to similar results, Right? Like, no matter who it is. So, I would have been fine with him. I did like him. You had mentioned that you had heard that the documentary doesn't really show his flaws. I don't know that I agree with that. I think it spends a lot of time on him being sort of robotic and emotionless. And his uh, lack of diversity amongst not only his supporters, but um, members of his campaign... Also, him sort of giving responses to questions regarding race and violence against, particularly because of that incident while he was on the campaign trail with a black citizen from South Bend being shot by a white cop and like wrongfully killed by a white cop. 
and his responses to it, people thought were very, um, like lacked empathy. Yes. So I think the documentary does delve into that. And I did feel for him. And the only thing I wanted to say after watching it was it's so interesting how as a community, like us in the United States, we hold politicians and celebrities to such a high standard. Like we want them to be able to answer every question correctly. And we want, these people are just doing a job and you want to hold these people to this impossibly high standard, but then you don't care about the shitty service you get at Target or the pharmacist who's rude to you at CVS or the person who comes and installs your internet. Like you don't hold anyone else to any standard. We make excuses for everyone. Oh, they're having a bad day. Oh, whatever this or blah, blah, blah. Or you might be a full on Karen and complain about everything, which actually sometimes makes more sense to me. Like you should be difficult across the board. It seems crazy that people don't involve themselves in politics. They don't vote in local elections, but they have super strong opinions about the fucking president, which is probably like the least. <laughs> that's the political position that probably has the least impact on our day to day lives. Sure. But that's the one that people are so emotional about. But then it's like you don't care about any other facet of government. Yes. You're not knowledgeable on anything else. And you don't hold anyone else to a similar standard. So I think it's just really odd to watch people, even his supporters talking to him. It's just like, this person is not your messiah. Yes, we, I, I think people have false or inflated expectations about their uh, favored or uh, disparaged candidates. And, I, you know... My impressions of Pete on the campaign trail were that he did seem very white. Uh, I, I did not see him representative of, you know, even kind of my own feelings on certain subjects. And, but to be fair, you know, the, the criticism of him being robotic, well, you know, that was his military training. Like, Well, and don't we want, I mean, I'm not saying what I want. Don't you want somebody to yeah. stay, be, stay calm and collected under and, pressure. And, and be able to make like good decisions under pressure? So I think that's unfair. I, I think it's weird that like his main criticism was that. It's like, I think that demonstrates an effective leader, perhaps. Sure. Not to say that you can't be emotional and still make tough decisions under pressure, but... Yeah, it was just interesting. And I don't know. I feel like people wanted so much from him. And he was clearly trying to pander to everyone. The, because his Kinda. husband, Chaston, seemed much more authentic. Although yes. I found him a little annoying. That, you know, these people are not religious. Pete and Chaston are not going to convince me that they go to church every Sunday. But then it's like Pete would try to, like, weave in his faith. Which is like, okay, girl. And then... Yeah, but Obama did that, too. He did it, too. Everyone does it. But, it's, like, in Pete, it seemed much more obvious because he is so robotic that it's like well i know how to give an answer to everything but it's like but who are you and again you know for my job it's like who cares who who i am i just need to do my job so i do think it's weird that we demand to know who you are that's not how government works like the president is not a king he can't just make decisions like mm -hmm. i don't believe in this so i'm gonna abolish this no we have lawmakers we have to vote on things we have a we, we have a supreme court we have <laughs> we have branches of government and many layers so that one person can't make all the decisions so just because a president or any polit political candidate doesn't have the exact same beliefs you do doesn't mean that they can't do their job effectively or that it will negatively impact yours. And that goes in both directions. Yeah, I mean... Having a Republican president doesn't mean that our world will, cr that's will the, crumble. That's the glory of uh, the United States. Right. And, and not being in Russia where whoever, you know, takes over could drastically change your life. 
overnight. Anyway, I would check it out. I, I, I did. It, it did make me feel sort of warm towards him. Um, and I think it's funny that you know there were all those memes of Pete with the beard, mm-hmm. like sexy Pete. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he's a cute little guy. I think he's cute. If you don't look at him too long. But anyway, moving well, on. you can say that about everybody, <laughs> I think. But, but well, not me. Um, oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay, moving on to just movies that were watched for fun. Uh, Not a lot of time for fun this week. No, there are only three. One is Army of Thieves. Which you watched. I didn't have time to watch that. I watched it. It's a prequel to Army of the Dead. Uh, Army of Thieves. Yes. Uh, And Matthias Schweighofer directed this one, whereas Zack Snyder directed the other one. Okay, so we talked about this last time, I think, because you thought I might like it because I said I liked Matthias or Matthias. He's a cute little guy, and his personality is fun in the movie. He's a little like Billy Magnuson, in my mind's eye. Yeah, I would say he's like a German Billy Magnuson. Magnuson. And you like him. And I like Billy Magnuson. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Army of the Dead is like, if you mix Ocean's Eleven with The Walking Dead. Because really the story is about like like a, a, a vault heist. Well, so, like these, this group of people are trying to break into a casino to steal a bunch of money out of a vault, and in the backdrop, there's like a zombie apocalypse. But wait, in the in the Zack Snyder film, it opens with whatever's like that virus being unleashed in that car accident on the road. To right, the it already exists. So in the prequel, the it's the same story. Like you have this group of people who are trying to execute a heist, and in the background, there's a zombie apocalypse. But it just started, so. In Army of the Dead, it's like full blown, like it's been going on. But in Army of Thieves, it's just like, because they're in Germany or they're not in the U.S. They're, oh, okay. They're like in England or I don't know. You know, I'm bad at remembering what? places. <laughs> Germany and England are very different. They're somewhere that's not the United States. Were they speaking English? No, not always. They probably weren't in England then. <laughs> well, they, I hear German. Okay. And I hear other languages. They're, they're definitely not in the United States. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but we hear them saying like, oh, did you hear about this like zombie shit in the United States? So it's just starting to bubble up. So it's not a zombie movie. It's a heist movie. And in the very end, you get some zombies. And then the very final shot is um, looking at Army of the Dead. Like okay. uh, whatever, ba- Bautista and his gang. Okay. Um, it felt a little cheap. It, it looks good enough, but you could tell that they really squeezed out every little penny to get what they got. Does it look better than Red Notice? Yes. Which is funny, because Red Notice costs a lot of money. But the film opens with Matthias, because it, it, it starts with him meeting his little band of crooks to go execute this heist. And then he goes, wait a minute. Is this like one of those groups where each one of us has our own specialty and then like we're going to be able to do this thing because we all have our thing? And then the leader goes, yeah. And then it is. So it's just so it just felt as generic as every movie like it. Like, oh, you have these five people. They all have their thing. Yeah. And they're going to. And then it felt repetitive because we see Matthias's skill is that he can unlock safes. Mm -hmm. And there are like four scenes with him unlocking a safe. And he gets so excited because that's what his character does. That was grating. Mm -hmm. So the film felt long. And it just also feels like a bank heist in the midst of an apocalypse that's going to kill everyone. Seems kind of weird. Especially as a prequel. Because it's like, oh, well, we know this is not going to end well. Right. (laughs) So the the stakes feel very low. Uh, It's very predictable. 
I think the only character in the film who I thought was, you know, cute is Matthias, like well written enough. But I guess for like streaming for free, if you liked the first movie, it doesn't really relate that strongly to the next one. So I don't know. You didn't bring up um, other films that released this week that we didn't cover. Kenneth Branagh's Belfast, which is kind of going to be a big deal, I think, in the award season. That's not on your list. Oh, maybe I didn't. So. Anyway, that opened this week. I, I saw it months ago, and it won Toronto's Audience Award. Okay. Uh, beautifully shot. It looks beautiful, and I like the female lead, but otherwise I was a little cool on it. Well, what is on my list next is Teresa 37. Yeah, this wasn't really a film for fun, but I interviewed Danilo Serbeja and uh, the lead actress and screenwriter Lana Baric. Uh, it's the Croatia's... Uh, official submission uh so we'll likely have that interview up on our youtube channel okay which then, went which went really well and i really quite like that film and then last on this particular list is on the water uh yes i also interviewed uh, estonia's uh, estonian director petar sim who's been directing things uh for 40 years uh, and his latest film on the water is estonia's submission uh and we had an interesting conversation as well I, I haven't had the liberty of seeing any of his previous films because many of them are unavailable in the u.s but he's been around a long time he's directed things across many eras of uh you know shifting political landscapes in the soviet union uh so th it was interesting okay we still have a lot to go and time is running out so you did afi like you watched four films for afi so can you go through those quickly yeah, uh, Huda Salon. Oh, Huda Salon by uh, Hani Abu Assad is a Palestinian Dutch filmmaker who I usually like a lot. He's probably still best known for Paradise Now, uh, in the mid two thousands. Omar was a big deal, uh, and he did uh, The Mountains Between Us, starring Kate Winslet and Idris Elba. But he has a new movie that is kind of a strange little thriller that, for the most part, I liked. It hit some snags, but uh, Huda Salon was part of TIFF's platform program, and I finally caught up with it at AFI, and I do recommend it. Hit the Road. Hit the Road, I missed at Cannes. Uh, it was in the director's fortnight. It is directed by Jafar Panahi's song, Pana Panahi, uh, a, a road movie that is strange and very interesting. I, I know a lot of people like the lead child performance, but you know how I feel about precocious children. Uh, I liked almost everything about the film except that child, uh, but also glad to finally caught up with it. Bruised. I saw Halle Berry's directorial debut. Oh, that's right. Which premiered technically at TIFF 2020 virtually, but it was one of those things where they wouldn't let press see it, so I don't know why you would put it in a virtual film festival and then not allow press to see it. Uh, so Netflix, of course, bought it out of that, and for the first time, audiences are seeing it here at AFI. Um, I went physically to this screening at the Chinese, and mostly because I wanted to see Halle... Uh, in a Q&A with, uh, moderated by Ava DuVernay, uh, who I'm also a huge fan of. And that was a very lovely Q&A, uh, I have to say. What did you think about the movie overall? Overall, Halle Berry worked her ass off, and it is impressive on many fronts. I think the screenplay cuts a lot of corners, but you know, you have to keep in mind this was written for a mid-20s Irish Catholic woman, uh, so Halle took over this project and, you know, reconfigured it for herself. And I, th I think that there are some segues that seem too rushed. Uh, but that said, I, I walked away being very impressed, and it has some moving, poignant moments as well. Okay, lastly, Tragedy of Macbeth, which you said was a near-perfect film. I think it's a perfect film. Oh, perfect um, film. Okay. So 
I believe certain critics guilds might get like because um, at first A twenty four said they would not send uh, discs for this, but we we might get one, and I I want us to cover it, but I think you need to see it. I don't. I this is something I don't want it to be where it's just me talking about it. Like I loved this movie. I had chills. I'm sure you're not sick. No, this was oh. days ago now that I saw okay. this. Please uh, don't demean me. Uh, I th- it Denzel, Francis McDormand are one thing, but everything, the look of the film, the production design, the special effects, the witches, you know, the weird sisters. Macbeth's always been my favorite Shakespeare play. And there, there are several very good versions of this film. But, oh my God, I loved it. That sounds great. Okay, projects of interest. You didn't have any. I have one. The Untitled Holiday Rom-Com. So Netflix uh, uh, posted a still from their new Lindsay Lohan movie. Oh, God. And I have to say, she looks all right. She looks all right. Okay. You know, I I, I would definitely watch it. I'm sure we will. (laughs) Well, good for her. But I thought, good for her. Her hair looked nice. It was smooth. And it looked like it was all one piece of hair. And her face looked... I mean, it was a little pulled, but I, I thought she looked nice. Her teeth looked like she had all of them. That's good. And they were the color of porcelain. So, same. And uh, so, that was good. Uh, okay, the obituary section. Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap. He gone. He was he, 85. He was old. But, you know, he, you know people forget, though, he had many... Um, Different. Isn't he in a movie where he's gay? Like he's like a gay pimp or something? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Oh, we have uh, a lot of time. Go ahead. But, uh, you, you know, he had many different uh, kind of uh, seasons in his career. He was a child actor in the 40s. He was, oh. in, he was in Gentleman's Agreement um, oh. with Gregory Peck. Uh, but, yeah, I think a lot of people associate him with a couple um, choice selections, including Quantum Leap uh, with Scott Bakula. Who we saw at the theater once. Yes. With his, uh, with his son. With his gay son. We don't know that he was gay. That boy was gay. Okay. Look it up. I'm, I don't care You're not to. gay. He's gay. I don't care to, but you do it. Um, what, you said you were going to talk about his little... Dean oh, Stockwell was in a... I, I recall him playing like a gay pimp or something. Um, that is his... Okay, that's my favorite Dean Stockwell performance and a very iconic moment in David Lynch's Blue Velvet where he sings Roy Orbison... <laughs> Wearing that full face of makeup in the garage. Between Dean Stockwell's moment and that, Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini, that blew my little child's mind wide open. Okay, next. Oh, um, no, no. I wanted oh, to talk about, like, oh. four. Um, did you? Oh, yeah. Uh, like a top five Dean Stockwell over his career. You didn't write that on here. Okay. But so how would it. I know? And also, if you want to spend time talking about our secret movie, then, I'll yeah. just run through. Okay, I, uh, highlights across his career. Uh, number one, of course, you have to see Blue Velvet. His Oscar, his sole Oscar nomination was for uh, Married to the Mob. Highly recommend that film. Um, Long Day's Journey into Night, opposite Catherine Hepburn from the fifties, a Sidney Lumet adaptation of the famed Eugene O'Neill play. Excellent. Uh, Compulsion um, with Orson Welles, and uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, Tucker, The Man in His Dream, a Coppola film from the late 80s, but among many other things. Well, R.I.P. Dean Stockwell. There's also another death, uh, Conroji Calhoun Sr. He played Halle Berry's character's son in the movie Monsters Ball. That's right, yes. 
he passed recently and I was reading about him and I found something, it was kind of sad, but so that was his only acting role. He died from, I believe, congestive heart failure. He was a biggin. And in Monster's Ball, it's a plot point that he's sort of like big and slow. And mm -hmm. But um, I was reading that Halle Berry was very conflicted in that character because her character has to be quite abusive to him, like mm -hmm. name-calling him. And So she had a lot of conversations with him. Like she said she spent a lot of time hugging and kissing him and telling him how sweet he was and that, you know, don't, like, ig ignore what I'm saying and it's just pretend and you're such a good boy and... She said that he told her, you don't have to worry about what you say. It can't be as bad as how they treat me at school. Mm. Um, so I thought that was really, um, you know, sad. And, yeah. you know, I hope he's at peace now. Yeah. Okay. So we have uh, about 20 minutes left. Which, is, you know Not, what, is all the time we need to devote to this trash film. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Because I feel like I could go on and on about it, but also I don't want to. Because uh, I was quite bothered by this movie. Yes. So we were we were going to watch... Uh, what is it called? Uh, what's the, the... The Jets and the... Oh, you had suggested... Well, it was my week to pick, but you suggested we watch West Side Story. Oh, yes, because we're going to go... We're going to watch the new one soon. So I thought, oh, let's watch the original. But then I forgot that I had rewatched it not too long ago, and I still remembered it. So then you tried to get me to watch... Uh, Suddenly last summer. Suddenly last summer, but it, but like all you do is talk about that movie, so I... Well, it's it's it's... So Perfect. I'm very familiar with it. There's no need for me to watch it. Sure, but it was then you tried to put on the Duke of Burgundy, which I had also seen. <laughs> right, right. But part of the reason for this 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 section of the podcast is to also revisit fun things as well. So. Well, I think your version of fun is that you just you want to control like what I'm watching. Like you want me to watch something versus like would it be fun to talk about or the Duke of Burgundy would be fun to talk about. Sure, but I, you know, so I elected to not watch that because I had watched it already. So then you pull out this film. Which I've had sitting for years. <laughs> and what made you choose this movie? I was, because I was packing up some stuff, and I was like, oh, I've had this sitting for years, and it, it occurred to me that it might be interesting to talk about. Um, I have memories of it. Of well, so here, to, to announce what it is, we watched the 1975 75 film Mandingo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only familiar, I'm familiar that there is a movie called Mandingo, and I know that it's in reference to, like, a big, strong black man. Uh, which I believe became culturally re relevant because of the success of this film. But as a child garage sailing with my mother, I remember picking up a copy of it, and my mom, like, basically slapping it out of my hand, saying, like, you are not reading that. And that book was based on a 1957 novel, and there's a whole series about this plantation and these characters by Kyle Onstott um, but of course Ruben Fleischer made it into a very infamous film in 1975 called Mandingo okay so just the basic story is it's set in the deep south uh, like pre-civil war 1840s so 1840 and there is this slave owner played by James Mason James Mason with a terrible accent and yes. his son Perry King mm-hmm so it's he and his son living on this plantation with their slaves. Which is called Falcon Crest. Falcon Crest, which is funny because there's a TV show called Falcon is, Crest. Is it Falcon Crest or Falcon Hurst? Oh, it's Falcon Hurst. Okay. The TV show is called Falcon right. Crest. But anyway, it's the dad and the son, and they live on this plantation with their slaves. P 
Perry King's character is in love with one of the slaves and he seems to prefer black women and the dad knows that and he keeps like a, what he calls like a bed wench. A bed wench, yeah. So it's kind of a common thing that these white slave owners uh, will have sex with these black women but of course, you know, don't respect them and have no intention of being in a real romantic relationship with them. So the goal is that they actually marry a white woman and then bear like a son mm -hmm. to keep the lineage, this old garbage ass lineage going. Yeah. So of course, James Mason wants his son to get married to bear him a grandson. So they arrange for him to marry his own damn cousin. Played by Susan George. Who looks like she is also inbred. Yes. So, because Perry King is pretty good looking in this movie. Um, he's in very good shape. Hammond. Well, he he's in very good shape, but his character has a fucked up knee. Yeah, which is weird. I don't understand why that needs to be a, a plot point, but he's very... Well, uh, because he can't... He gets off on training these black men to fight oh right because he can't himself but anyway so perry king marries his cousin mm -hmm. okay in the backdrop you know it's a goal that these slave owners buy like studs like good studs so strong black men who can bear more children who are also strong and they can do more slave work and then i guess like the ultimate goal is if you can get like a mandingo so it's like people who breed horses getting like a like a top tier thoroughbred yeah, yeah. so he finds one, and his name is, uh, his full name I can't pronounce, but his Ganymede. name... Ganymede. Oh, Ganymede, but his nickname is Mead. And Played by Ken Norton. Ken Norton, who's an actual, like, championship fighter. Yeah. And is obviously, like, this very big, strong uh, specimen of a man. And he gets roped into fighting, and he's kind of like Perry King's character's, like, favorite slave, kind of. Almost like a strange avatar, too. Because he uses him to also, like, control other slaves and yeah. whatever. But the film ends with Perry King's character gets his black bed wench pregnant mm -hmm. and then his old inbred looking wife gets mad and like beats the baby out of her Th face. She throws, she throws it downstairs. Okay. And then to get revenge on her husband, she forces she blackmails me to me. have sex with her and then she's pregnant. So then she delivers this mulatto baby mm -hmm. And then... That they kill. The doctor kills. That, yeah, that they kill because, like, she clearly can't have this baby. And Perry King's character finds out and kills Mandingo. Mm -hmm. Some other little things happen. But when I tell you... It was hard to watch. My yes. very first note... We don't have a lot of time. My very first note was triggered. Yeah. Like, it's just... You know, I think telling authentic stories about the black experience uh, in the United States is very important. But this film is not well done, so it feels exploitative. And then just knowing that it isn't well done and then watching these slaves... Because the opening scene is watching slaves being sold. Mm -hmm. And then the use of the N-word is, is accurate. A profligate use of the N-word. It's accurate for the era, but it's just hard to listen to when it's not... You know, because it's not well done. But 20 minutes in, I'm like... Is this all of these white people? They are only talking. Well, we were talking about this, and I believe this to be true. I mean, based on historical recounts, this is true. But I feel like when people are engaged in behaviors that maybe at their core they don't believe is wrong, but like when they are sort of like empirically wrong, mm -hmm. like not treating other human beings like the Nazis with equal respect. Like like Nazis, like anyone engaged in genocide or misogyny or yeah. racism, whatever, homophobia, trans... When you 
engage, when, when you knowingly engage in these inhumane behaviors, you become preoccupied with justifying those behaviors. Right. So we see these characters constantly talking about reinforcing black, reinforcing the idea that black people are less than human that their animals need to be tamed in so it, it's like so that they feel good about these decisions mm-hmm. they're making it's just really hard to watch yes um and I, I think quentin tarantino commented that of the only two studio films grand big budget scale studio films that were exploitation films were this film and showgirls and i have to agree let me go through my notes um so triggered uh Perry King is uh, like very good looking, which I thought was interesting. They had trouble casting that, but but I feel like they kind of it, it's an interesting choice to cast like an attractive man because then it's like, is this black woman who is his bed wench and who clearly has feelings for him, is she doing it because he actually is appealing or just because she feels like I feel a little conflicted that they could have. Maybe they shouldn't have chose a man who is appealing. He, I think he should have been as disgusting as James Mason. I agree. This. So that way it's very clear that this woman, his bed wench, is only with him because she has no control. But, uh, played by Brenda Sykes, by the way, who was also in a film called Honky and Black Gun with Jim Brown. Jim Brown turned this film down. Um, uh, uh, Ma- uh, James Mason's character has rheumatoid arthritis. And so there's a plot point where he's told like, oh, you have to like... Um, in order to get rid of it, you have to transfer it to like an N word. <laughs> yeah, he's got this little black boy. So then he has a little black boy who he makes him like, like sleep next to his feet, or then he like rests his feet on him like in the hot sun. Yeah, it's <laughs> that shit was out of control. I read um, James Mason said he only did this movie to pay alimony. <laughs> again, the acting is Terrible. crunchy. It's very bad. It's crunchy. Uh, even you know Ken Norton, I don't think is very good. Um, it, but again, he's not really written as well as a character either, so it's not entirely his fault. I think Brenda Sykes has some screen presence. The the cousin? No, Ellen. Oh, the the bed wench. Yes. Okay, the the white lady bride. Susan George, who you know from Tinto Rara, uh, but she's probably best known for her uh, role in Straw Dogs, the Heather Graham of her era. Um, there's a scene where because Perry King's character is not attracted to her. No, because he doesn't really. Well, because there's a lot of dialogue between the father and the son about like how white women and sex, like white women don't like... They're terrified at the sight like, of a naked man. Yeah, they don't like to see men naked. They're very sexually timid. And that's why these white men like black women, because they'll do more. So Perry King's character is already like, he's not attracted to his cousin, period. Right. Uh, so And he gaslights her, though. He does, but then he ultimately has sex with her, and then he says, like, you're not a virgin. Mm-hmm. And that scene where he confronts her about not being, being a virgin, I thought was... I mean, it's LOL, which is probably not appropriate. My next note is, there. you know, a big plot point is uh, making these slaves fight. And I was thinking, you know, I don't like sports. Partially Bo- because... Boxing. Partially because it's a sort of a male-dominated thing that's not very gay-friendly. And mm-hmm. It's misogynist and homophobic generally. So I don't feel like I belong. But I think I've always been bothered. I, I can recall being a young person, like seven or eight. And I always thought it was so weird, like... Because my dad really liked football and boxing, which is predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, it's so weird that, like, all these white people gather around to watch these black men engage in this physical activity. This gladiatorial that, sports, yeah, yeah, that is harmful to their bodies. And I, and, I, and I wonder if subconsciously I relate it to, because I am aware that also as being a young person, that 
you know, these black male slaves were um, forced to fight each other for mm-hmm. sport. So I wonder if that's why I just really watching sports in general, you know, not things like golf or tennis or mm-hmm. sports that are predominantly white tend to be a lot more um, like genteel we're not, and we're not, civilized. Well, we're not like breaking up white bodies. Right. We're not breaking up. So I want, so I feel like football uh, and boxing real and even basketball really bother me because it's just like all these white people who are so obsessed and then it's like white men seem so obsessed with like the black male form mm-hmm. like black like they're so obsessed with black men as like a physical being and like penis size and it's just very it, it's just very icky to me and this film definitely reinforced that I grew up watching uh, my parents were really into boxing and I was always very disturbed by it uh and actually, I'd never actually have sat and watched, unless it's in a film, like the Rocky films or even, you know, Halle Berry's Bruise. I, I don't sit and watch boxing because I, I think I am disturbed at how people tend to respond to that kind of, like they love that kind of violence. I thought the best scene in the film was uh, Mead, uh, a, a slave escapes, a black male slave escapes, and then Mead is sent out to chase him and Mead catches him. And the, and the black man says, like, you know, you're just, like, you're, like, you're just letting this white slave master, like, may help, you know, you're helping him kill black men. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to know that you catching me right now, you need to know that you are the reason I'm going to die. Yeah. And then they do end up catching him and hanging him. And before he gets hanged, he tells me, like, you, like, he gives a speech about, like, you're the reason I'm dying. Mm-hmm. And I need you to know that. Yeah. I thought that actor and that part was the best part of the Cicero. film. Yeah. And had that been the tone of the film with that quality of acting, this would be an epic movie. Sure. Like, so it's unfortunate. Like Roots kind of, you know. Uh, the I, white... I think the best part of the film is the song Muddy Water sings opening and closing it. That's oh. it. <laughs> the white lady cousin bride. Susan uh, with the With the inbred looking face. Her hair is a literal nightmare. Yeah. I think this film is a nightmare, but her hair is a nightmare. She has these like pencil thin highlights. Yeah. On this like like ugh, we're running out of time. Yeah. I I. They they chastise her because she like takes to the bottle and he's like, "You're drinking those hot toddies like an old drunk." <laughs> yeah. Um. You said something that I think describes this film accurately. It's just like a racist ass soap opera. Yeah. That's what I feel. By the time we get to the end and he's going up to see the the dead black infant, it's like, yeah, this plays like a race. Because I was on edge and I was anxious, so I was uncomfortable. I exclaimed several times because I think I'm just... It... I would classify this as a horror film. Also, I can see like Antebellum and Antebe- 12 Years a Slave. And a see, lo- Antebellum's a good point because I think Antebellum, which was one of my favorites last year, works so well because it's trying to re-envision these things through contemporary language. And this film is set, you know, a hundred years before it was, over a hundred years before it was filmed. And we're trying to talk about this period using kind of contemporary language and it just doesn't work. And I don't know if there's a way to correctly convey, which is why a lot of, I think slave films dance around things that this is really trying to drill down on because it's so uncomfortable and yeah. I, I just don't know that you know we can there was it. one scene I wanted to mention the father Perry King's father James Mason's very preoccupied with like his son's sex life because he wants this like your grandson and he basically like locks uh, the husband and wife in a room and says like I'm locking you in 
and I'm not letting you out until you're done pleasuring. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. There was lots of, yeah, all of films released this Blu-ray and there was no subtitles. So it was, I think I would have been more upset if I actually understood half of what was being oh, said. Oh yes, there but, were no subtitles and I think I missed out on probably like 30% of the dialogue. But I wish I had seen this film before uh, Django Unchained and 12 Years a Slave because I think both of those films borrow, were, heavily. borrow heavily from this, including... Um, the treatment of Lupita Nyong'o's character in 12 Years a Slave, uh, particularly, I, I think, feels very similar to what, uh, you know, uh, Brenda Sykes goes through here. And, and also, of course, Django Unchained, particularly um, the Mandingo fighting and uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, because there's a Frenchman that clearly he is modeled after. Modeled after. I would love to, I would love to watch this film in, like, a little sort of pretentious theater like the fucking New Beverly or something <laughs> with a bunch of white people and I just have all my black ass in the corner like watching all these white people watch this movie. That would... that If you're black listening to me talk about this movie, I feel like that's the only way to watch it. You can't watch it with other black people because it's just like depressing and upsetting. Yeah. But I would love to watch this movie with white people and see... <laughs> well, so, you know, part of the... Re I didn't... This felt like a film like I don't want to watch alone. Uh... It, they very much were trying to do this Gone with the Wind thing with it, and uh, I don't know. And I'm glad I didn't watch it alone, but it it's sleazy. It's uh, uncomfortable. It's not good. Uh, but, you know, the production design, Anne Roth did the costuming. Maurice Jarre did the score. Shout out to Debbie Morgan, who has uh, one demeaning little moment in the well, film as that's well. That's right. Um, you know, it's, a lot of white people, white Hollywood passed on these roles. And I, again... I know slave stories are still important to tell, but, you know, as a white person, I just can't imagine being like, yeah, I want to play these roles. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard choice to want to play a despicable person, but... And Ruben Fleischer, you know, just all the wrong people were involved, and I think tell if this story needs to be told, it, we need to... White people need to stop telling these stories. I don't know. Oh, and, you know, there was... So, uh... Ken Norton dies, but he turns up in the sequel a year later because this made too much money not to have a sequel called Drum, which I haven't seen. And uh, my fave Pam Greer is in it. But again, I've also avoided these films because I, I don't feel like watching them alone. Um, so who knows when, maybe it'll be another decade before I see Drum. But Anyway, um, that's all the time we have. Do you have a quote? Um, I do have a quote uh, to uh, get us back into uh, to shake off the sleaze of this film and maybe <laughs> the, the sentiments about it. Uh, let's go back to the wonderful Nella Larson uh, again. Please read Quicksand or Passing or both. Uh, but she had a quote that I found that I liked. Authors do not supply imaginations. They expect their readers to have their own and to use it. Is that it? Yep. All right, bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.